Kuto, everyone. So nice to see you. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, like Newt said, thank you for the introduction, Newt. My name's Jen Russell. And uh, thank you to the team for inviting me to speak. Uh, I've done some interviews here, sometimes little segments, but getting a whole 25 minutes. <sighs> Buckle up. <laughs> Um, so we're just, I'm going to work with um, our team at the back here, just uh, um, on our slides. I, I didn't print off a copy of my talk, so I'm just going to say next slide when we're ready. So let's go. For the benefit of those who don't uh, know me, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in Wellington, very proud of that, and reluctantly moved to Auckland after high school to attend medical school. And I'm married to Matheson. Uh, we have two boys, Chester and Toby. And I work as a paediatrician at Starship, which we affectionately call the mothership. I, I look after children there who've got developmental and behavioural difficulties. And I really love my job, really love my job. Um, I wanted to start this talk, because it's Mother's Day, by telling you a, uh, a pure mum story, a real mum moment that I had um, just a couple of weeks ago. So we went camping at Easter with friends at Hotwater Beach in the Coromandel, absolutely beautiful, you know, idyllic beach, perfect setting. And then on the drive home, we got into a bit of windy road, you know those hills, those windy hills that come out of the Coromandel, yeah, it's, it's a tricky bit of road. And Toby, our three-year-old, he's not great with driving, he gets really carsick. And it's common for us to be on a bit of motorway, like perfectly flat, perfectly smooth motorway, and for Toby to say, Daddy, please stop the car, I feel sick. So, you can imagine how he must have felt. Poor wee boy, we're coming out of these very hilly, windy roads out of the Coromandel, and I look back at Toby, because I'm sitting in the passenger seat, so I look back at Toby and I can see he's gone a bit quiet. He looks a little bit pale. And you know how you can sort of read kids? I thought to myself, uh-oh, he's going to be sick. Matheson and Chester, by the way, totally oblivious to this, but I'm reading the situation. We have a situation. So I start looking around the car, and I'm looking for, you know, basically anything that I can use. Any kind of vessel would be fine. I like beating myself up, thinking I really should have packed a plastic bag. Why do I do this to myself? I look back at Toby, he looks seriously off colour. I can see the clock, the, the countdown in my mind. I think I've got seconds. I'm rummaging through all this crap that we've got in the car. I get all the crap, why have we got all this crap? We don't have any vessels, no vessels. I managed to find a Ma Higgins cookie packet. <laughs> They're the ones with the Ziploc top. I think that'll do. So I grab it, tip all the cookies out. I lean back from the passenger seat towards Toby, I stretch out my arm with the cookie packet on it. And as soon as it, the bag hits his chin, he throws up into the bag and I spectacularly catch all the spew. Thank you. <laughs> it was an absolute mum ninja move. It was like mum level 10 pro. I have peaked. I will never have such an amazing mum moment. It was 100% mum instinct. There was no applause. <laughs> Matheson only barely registering what's just happened, the disaster we've all averted. 
Toby looks up at me and he grins and he sort of wipes his chin. <laughs> he says, thank you, mummy, I feel all better. So I zip up the bag, <laughs> genius, and we just keep driving. Matheson never looked so happy to be the one driving that day. So usually with a church talk, um, with a story like this, it's supposed to segue neatly into the sermon, and I'd ideally share some meaningful interpretation of this story, which resonates with a theological point which we're driving to, but there really is none for this story. Yeah, I just felt like it was a 100% pure mum moment. There's, the only meaning I can draw from it is mothering is really hard work, and there's hazards everywhere. Okay, moving on. <laughs> So people who know me well will tell you that I spend pretty much all of my time thinking about children. And specifically, I spend pretty much all of my time thinking about children here in Aotearoa and what we can do as a society to make this place great for children to grow up. And when I'm not working at Starship, I'm working on my PhD, which is with the Growing Up in New Zealand study. And growing up is the country's largest ever study of children and their families. And in fact, we do have growing up families here at St. Augustine's. During my PhD, I've used the data to explore how a child's social background influences their health and development. Next slide, please. Thank you. The key finding of my PhD is that children's health and development is very closely connected to the level of advantage and disadvantage that they grow up with. This is a principle. It doesn't apply to everybody, but if you look at the whole population, which is what we do in epidemiology, if you look at the whole population, this is what we see, that there's a gradient in children's health and development based on their family's social position. It means that as the level of disadvantage in a child's life goes up, it becomes harder and harder for that child to reach their full potential. It's not impossible, this is not deterministic, just when you look at the whole population, you can see the playing field is stacked. Having parents who are worried about money all the time, not being able to afford trips out, having empty pantry cupboards, seeing mum or dad skip meals, having parents who didn't make it through school, parents who work shifts to make ends meet, Parents who don't speak English. Having parents who have disabilities or addictions, or maybe only having one parent, or maybe having a parent who can't focus on your needs because they're so overwhelmed with their own. All these disadvantages can add up. And it's not uncommon for each of us to experience some of these, but if they all add up, and there's a lot of them, they can accumulate. They can pull together like water. The circumstances in which a child is born shape them, and these circumstances can release a child's human potential, or they can stifle it. And the parable of the seeds comes to mind. Next slide, please. Newt said, please put in a graph. <laughs> so here is one of my very own. This is actually a graph that I've created from my PhD results. My PhD is not completely written yet, which means that this is not peer-reviewed. But just, just go with me. Right, so using Growing Up in New Zealand's data, I created this index because I wanted to measure children's health and development. That's their physical, their social, emotional, behavioral, and cognitive development. 
I wanted to measure it a few times, serially, across the first five years of life. And by using this index, I can now identify the children in the study who are lagging behind in terms of their development and health. The ones who are in the lowest 15% of all the children in the study I've called developmentally vulnerable. Now, vulnerable isn't a perfect term, but again, just please go with it for now. These are the children, the developmentally vulnerable children, are the children who'll be behind their classmates when they get into school. And if you look at the blue bars, the blue bars represent the proportion of children who are developmentally vulnerable at age two, and the red bars represent the proportion of children who are developmentally vulnerable in their scores, their index scores, at age four and a half, just before they go into school. And on the x-axis is the scale of disadvantage. Going from the least disadvantaged, so the most wealthy neighbourhoods over here in the country, to the most disadvantaged neighbourhoods over here in the country. And what you're seeing here is what epidemiologists call the social gradient. The social gradient. As the level of disadvantage, poverty and difficulty and challenges increase, the proportion of children who are getting left behind is increasing. To the point where, if you're born into one of these neighbourhoods over on the right-hand side, by the time you are just about to enter school, you have a one in four chance of being developmentally vulnerable. Compared to, if you come over to this side, in our most wealthy neighbourhoods, just before you enter school, you've got a less than one in ten chance. And what I, what I call this, you know, when I look at this data, this is really the postcode lottery for human capability development in New Zealand. And I, I, you know, I told you buckle up. Really what this graph shows is that structural disadvantage is robbing children, lots of them, of their full human potential. And we can see it from as early as age two, and the gaps go on to widen. Next slide, please. Let me talk about resilience. So nothing about what I've just shown you is set in stone when a child is two years old or four years old, for that matter. There's actually quite a lot of flexibility in the system. The incredible ability of children to rise above the challenges around them and to withstand pressure, chaos, and stress. That's something that psychologists call resilience. It's not an infinite capacity. We can't take it for granted. We need to keep working to make the whole system better. But resilience is a real phenomenon. And I want to talk about this because building resilience in children is something that I believe that we, as the church, are uniquely placed to do. Even if children grow up in really stressful situations, there's good research which suggests that if these children then go on to experience love and care and resources, that they can do really well. They can do really well. So we can, that graph that I showed you before, we can tilt it back. So I believe the church is uniquely placed to do this work. And why would I say that? You know, why would we be uniquely placed to love and care for children? I want to suggest that the ability to see all children as worthy of love and care, not just our own, reflects the very heart of God's kingdom. Next slide, please. See, loving our neighbour as ourselves and extending the love that we have for our own family to others 
is a uniquely Christian calling. When we show love for others, we are abiding in the kind of love that God the Father shows us as his adopted children. In the scripture that Diz read earlier from James, we're reminded that real religion, the kind of religion that God finds acceptable, is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Israel was asked to care for foreigners, that is the immigrants, the migrants, the refugees, those who are different, who look different, who speak differently. And in Luke 14, Jesus tells us to invite those who are poor and disadvantaged, those who can't repay you, home for a meal, rather than your friends or your family or your wealthy acquaintances. I want to be part of a church that does that, you know? I want to be in a a community that does that because that's really different from what the world tells us to do. And it wasn't that different in in the first century when Jesus was around. In the first century Greco-Roman world, these were the groups that had no status and no power. Infants who were unwanted, particularly girls, were often abandoned in public places in quite large numbers. Exposed infants would die unless they were picked up by strangers, in which case they might be raised for profit as slaves and prostitutes and beggars. But Jesus had taught, let the little children come to me and don't forbid them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus elevated the status of children to a really high mark. And in fact, we see that the New Testament goes on to adopt the language of children as the framework for which we're to see our lives. This is a real elevation of the status of children. And, you know, the more I reflect on the life and teachings of Jesus, the more convinced I've become over the spotlessness of his character and the depth of his love. And it makes me just want to follow him my whole life. You know, because when we care for children, the powerless and the disadvantaged, we take up the posture that God has towards us. We start to join the dance of the Trinity. We abide in the kind of love that God the Father shows us as his adopted children. It feels hard to do it, but he fills us with his spirit. And out of that love that we experience, we then pour out to others. He fills us and we give out. He fills us and we give out. It's like breathing in and breathing out. It's the rhythm of the Christian life. Next slide, thanks. This is a picture of my parents in the 70s on their waka. (laughs) When my parents immigrated from Malaysia to Christchurch in the 1970s, they came, we say, fresh off the Boeing. (laughs) Fresh off the Boeing. Very cold, very white city, Christchurch. And there was no cha kwe tiao, there was no yum cha, there's no sambal. (laughs) They didn't know anyone, they didn't have any connections. They had their suitcases and they had their university degrees and they had each other and that's about it. They spoke English with a Malaysian accent. But this older Kiwi couple took a real interest in my parents. Next slide, please. This is a picture of me and my dad and my brother at, uh, at Dorothy and Tony Waller's home in Rotorua. You can see me there. I've got glasses. I've got this straight fringe. Yeah, very good, very important. <laughs> um, and that's their dog, Tushka. 
Now, Dorothy and Tony Waller, they were the first Kiwi family to befriend my parents to show them hospitality. Each year at Christmas time, they invited my parents to join them for Christmas lunch. And they invited them over for meals, and they were genuinely interested in my parents. And I remember once my Auntie Dot, as I called her, Auntie Dot said that when we visited them that we were family. And when my family moved away from Christchurch to Wellington, Auntie Dot and Uncle Tony sent us gifts at Christmas time and cards and our birthdays. And I called them my Kiwi grandparents. They came to my school prize giving and special events, and they told me how proud they were of me. And for a first-generation migrant child like me, having Kiwi grandparents meant so much because it made me feel like I really belonged here. You know, it felt like they had adopted us into their family. And nothing that they did was rocket science. It was meals and cards and catch-ups and friendships and sitting around the piano and Auntie Dot playing piano and us singing along. But they did it consistently over a long period of time. And when we were grown up ourselves, my brother and I would find ourselves looking out for people who'd recently immigrated to New Zealand. My brother told me he often thought of Auntie Dot and Uncle Tony and how much kindness they'd shown to our parents and how he wanted to do the same for others. Next slide, please. One of the things that I love about our community here at St Augustine's is the way that we have chosen to support refugee families. I love that this is something that we're doing together because let's face it, we're all really busy people. We've got busy lives. It's really hard to find time to reach out. But we, it's, this is something that we do together. So we carry each other through this, through this task. Every year we provide towels and kitchenware and blankets and Christmas presents to children and families who've just arrived in New Zealand. The families come from refugee camps. They've often left loved ones behind. Some of the children have never, ever received a present in their lives until they receive one from our church. If I'm very honest, many of the families live on the disadvantaged side of the graph that I showed you at the start. But by trying to care for these families in practical ways, we're showing what it looks like to love others beyond our own bubble. And we're still looking for ways to help, more and more ways to help these families. Next slide, please. You see, in a modern Western culture, we have a tendency to think about family as those that we're immediately related to. Not all cultures share this understanding. Some have more expansive interpretations of family, and we can learn something from that. But in our mainstream culture, this continues to be the dominant understanding of family. For instance, during the pandemic, we've just practiced staying at home and staying in our bubbles to protect our family. And the first century audiences that Jesus preached to had a similar understanding of family. Do well for your children. Get each other ahead. Grow the family's esteem. Grow the family's wealth. Your family consisted of your blood relations and your kinship group. But Jesus radically challenged this narrow vision of what family is. Next slide, please. In Scripture, there's a pattern of Jesus taking a familiar concept and then radically expanding that concept and reconstituting it around himself. 
we see this pattern again and again. He takes a familiar concept and he radically expands it. He explodes our idea of what that concept means and he starts to reconstitute it around himself. I'll give you an example. Jesus takes the familiar notion of the temple and he radically challenges it by symbolically overturning the money tables And then he reconstitutes the temple around himself, claiming that he is the place where forgiveness occurs. And he is the place where people can encounter the living God. Likewise, he takes the Judaic notion of Sabbath. And he radically expands it to include the vital work of caring for those who need help. He claims lordship over that Sabbath And he takes the concept of sustenance, hunger, thirst, food and drink, and he radically expands this notion and reconstitutes it around himself. He is the bread of heaven. He is the living water that quenches our thirst. Next slide, please. Theologian N.T. Wright says this. His aim was to reconstitute the people of God around himself to accomplish the real return from exile, to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Who are the people that we know who are in exile, symbolically in exile? How can we reconstitute the kingdom of God? Pattern comes to the category of family we can expect to see the same pattern, and we do see it. Jesus takes the concept of family, and he radically expands it. So one time when his mother and brothers come and ask to speak with him, he tells his disciples, incredibly, that it's his disciples who are his family. He says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I'm not sure what Mary thought of that. Sometimes if my boys say things that I don't like, I say nine months. I carried you. (laughs) Nine months. But this is what Jesus says. You know, these are hard truths. We are to leave our families, pick up our cross, and follow him. And at the end, when hanging on the cross, Jesus reconfigures Mary and John into a new family. He says, woman, here is your son, and to John, here is your mother. See, at the very end, Jesus was challenging our narrow understanding of family And he calls us into his new family, the family of God. And we are all now bound together, brothers and sisters in Christ. Next slide, please. What Jesus is doing, of course, makes perfect sense. Because that's exactly what we see God the Father doing in the long arc of Scripture that Matthew referred to at the start. Everything that the Father does the Son also does. Everything that the Father does, the Son also does. So in one sense, the story of Scripture is the story of God the Father reclaiming his children and adopting us back into his family. Next slide, please. What I've learned from over a decade in pediatrics working with children and families is that caring for other people and other people's children is really costly. I met a nana at a night shift at Middlemore Hospital who'd taken all her mokapuna, all of them, she said, to get them away from gangs and drugs. 
that was costing her. I've met children with really, really severe disabilities whose families broke down trying to meet their needs. And I've met the people who stepped into the gap to help, sometimes in really glorious, really glorious ways. When friends of ours, a professional couple, decided to open their home to foster children, another couple we're friends with became certified carers too, so they could help look after the children in the weekend. And it gave that ch those children a wider sense of community. So we do it together. Nothing that I'm saying implies that we're to do this alone. We do it together. A church I know in Napier ran an event where they invited a foster agency to speak to their community, and many families were moved, and they signed up to foster children again together. Some at the church began collecting children from the neighbourhood after school, and they set up an after-school program at the church. And then through the after-school program, they got to know many of the families nearby who needed help and support, and they would drop the kids back home after the after-school program with extra meals. So we do this together. Next slide, please. Caring for other people and other people's children is costly. It takes time and emotional energy. It does. But I want to encourage you because Jesus promised us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So if you're sitting here feeling like, I can't do this, don't feel that way. You're part of this community. We do this together. This is a calling to the whole church. When we, us, when we see with God's eyes, we're often empowered by the Spirit. A door opens and something happens. And we feel love bubbling up. And we have energy to help. And we start to reflect God's love into the world. We breathe in, we breathe out. It's the rhythm of the Christian life. Next slide. As I've grown older, I've become more and more fascinated with Mary, Jesus' mother. Mary's young. She's a teenager. When the angel Gabriel tells her that she will become pregnant through the Holy Spirit. We need to imagine this from Mary's point of view to understand just how precarious Mary's situation was. See, Mary is a peasant girl. She's a girl. She comes from the line of King David, but the significance of this royal connection has been lost because her nation has been occupied, its territory colonized, She's been impoverished by the Roman Empire. And she lives in an insignificant village. Nothing good ever comes from there. On the outskirts of an occupied territory, she's putting her life together. As a girl, she's expected to marry and have children rather than to be educated or have any status, even though there's evidence here in Scripture that Mary actually was taught and highly educated in Scripture. But the shining light in Mary's world is that she's engaged to Joseph. He's a devout man of royal lineage. He's a good man. She'll soon be married and enjoy the status and protection of being Joseph's wife. So her life is on the way up. So when the angel comes to tell Mary that she is to have a child that's not Joseph's child, the timing could not be worse. Who's going to believe her if she says she's become pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Really? No one. Her reputation will be in 
ruins. Whispers and rumours will follow her for the rest of her life. Joseph is likely to divorce her. He is, after all, a godly man. She will be an outcast. She'll bring shame on her family. She'll be unwanted, unable to marry again. Her child and herself becoming a financial burden on her family. Caring for other people's children is costly. Next slide, please. But incredibly, Mary says yes to God's plan. This, by the way, is a detail of a print by an artist named Ben Wildflower, and I love it because it's called Mary Punching Beast. The beast actually has seven heads you can't see. Kapow! I love it. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then she sings a song of praise, so subversive, so upside down, that it was banned in public places for a long period of time. In the Magnificat, she celebrates that it's the hungry, the humble, the disadvantaged, whom the Lord elevates. You wonder where Jesus got it from. Saying yes to having Jesus is inconvenient, shameful, and costly for Mary. Yet she sings, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You know, it's as if Mary doesn't really understand how the world works. She hasn't really got it. It's as if she kind of believes that whoever is last will be first. Next slide. So as Christians, how are we to understand what motherhood is? What is motherhood? It's not just, it's not just getting your nails done. <laughs> it's not just getting a new haircut and making pancakes. It's not just that. It's actually not even just hard work of carrying children and breastfeeding and looking after the ones that you love. This is my key point right here. As a follower of Jesus, motherhood is not just a biological state, even though this is an expression of what we aim for. Motherhood is actually a posture of receiving others and adopting them into our circle of care and love. Motherhood is a posture of continually looking to expand your family, to bring in those with no status or any way to pay you back, and to love them the way that God has loved us as his adopted children. My prayer for this church is that we would allow Jesus to radically expand our understanding of what family is and to reconstitute it around him and his kingdom, just the way that Mary did. Next slide. Compelled by Jesus' teachings, early Christians would go outside of the city gates to collect the abandoned infants, and they would raise them as their own children. And later, it was Christians who would go on to set up orphanages and hospitals and public schools. 
Christians would later campaign for the abolition of slavery. They would help women and children who were in prison. What I want to suggest is that we, the body of Christ here in Tamaki Makoro, can do the same. We can step into the long Christian tradition of caring for the disadvantaged and the powerless and the children and the childlike. And as we adopt others, we will expand the kingdom of God. We'll tilt the gradient, we'll tilt the gradient back towards health, wholeness, and inclusion. So let me finish with this. My brothers and sisters in Christ, for that is what I now call you, real religion that God our Father accepts as sound and of real worth is this, caring for orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself from being shaped by the world. Bless you all. Amen.